Last week we finished chapter 39, so we are now on chapter 40. And between 39 and 40 is a break in Isaiah. 1 through 39 talks about sin and the Assyrian invasion and judgment and so forth. Afterwards, it starts going deep and looking to redemption and restoration. Modern scholars, starting in about the 19th century, I think, posited that 1 through 39 had a different author than 40 through the end of the book. In fact, there are some that say that there are two authors in the last half of the book. I don't agree with that, and I don't agree with that based on any personal knowledge. I have read both sides of the argument, and the side of the argument I like is it's all one author. I'm not an authority. So if you have heard something different or you want to study that yourself and come to whichever conclusion you want to come to, that's fine with me. I've just read both sides and I've said, all right, this is where I am. Against a competent biblical scholar, I would not be able to stand up and argue. I don't have the knowledge to do that. A couple of things that I see in defense of the idea that it's one author as opposed to two or three is up until the 19th century when liberal scholars started picking at the Bible in general, both the Jews and the church and everybody else said it was one author. So it's only very recently that the idea that there's more than one author has come up. The other thing that I find at least persuasive for me is Yeshua as he is doing his ministry, reads from Isaiah in a couple of places in the Gospels. In both cases, one in the early part of Isaiah and one in the late part of Isaiah, he attributes both of them to the prophet Isaiah. So from my perspective, if it was good enough for Yeshua, it's good enough for me. Starting in 40, you have a lot of poetic stuff that goes on. We may get through two or three chapters tonight, or may not, depending on what you guys want to do. It sort of alternates between extolling God and lauding and magnifying God and pointing out the folly of idolatry. Those two themes sort of alternate through the chapters. Most of it we sing periodically in the congregation. I mean, they're very, very famous passages. When we get to the voice crying in the wilderness and so forth, that will take you to the Gospels where you find John the Baptist, rabbinic Jews. When they read this, do not see Yeshua in it. They see Israel. As Paul says in Romans, whenever they read Moses, they have a veil over their eyes. So when they read this, not being messianic, they see Israel. And they are bright people and they know the language a whole lot better than I do, and they are sincere and they care. So I'm I'm not hurling anathema at them. They have an honest disagreement. Since I am messianic, I happen to fall on the, these things are pointing to the Messiah side. They fall on the, these things are pointing at Israel side. And one of the reasons that's important, just as sort of background, one of the things that happens to messianic believers when they come out of the Sunday church where they usually have grown up and they have been handed the Bible John first. In other words, 
somebody gives them a Bible and says, start in the Gospel of John. And since they start in the Gospel of John, and the people who start them in the Gospel of John have a certain viewpoint, that's how they see John. Again, sincere, honest, so forth. When I read the book of John, I'm reading it from the perspective of the Torah. And so I see the book of John somewhat differently than they do. Both of us see the Messiah and so forth, but we see things slightly differently. And the same thing happens with the Jews when they read their scriptures. But the other thing that happens with places like Isaiah is when Sunday Christians come into being messianic, one of the places they fetch up is on rabbinic websites. You've got very, very bright people who are very competent biblical scholars that make a very persuasive argument for their side, and their argument is couched from an anti-missionary perspective. In other words, what they're saying to fellow Jews is the missionaries are going to come to you and they're going to try and tear you out of Judaism and they're going to take you to places like Isaiah here and they're going to say this is talking about Jesus. And this is why that's wrong. The emphasis there is to counter Christian missionaries from converting Jews. Well, what happens with Sunday Christians who wind up on sites like that especially as they have come out of the Sunday church and they have come to realize that there's a whole lot more to the Torah than they have been taught. And they're sort of reorienting their entire perspective on the Bible. When they run into a site like that where you have a very competent Hebrew scholar that says Christians are just full of cornflakes, well, they're sort of primed to think that the Sunday church in many respects is full of cornflakes because they deny the Torah and other stuff. So that when they hit these Jewish sites, it says the Sunday church is full of cornflakes here, they are primed to buy it. And what then often happens is they sort of slide right past Messianic Judaism on into Judaism. And places like this are places where the anti-missionary rabbis sort of hang their hats. So let's jump in. So Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Notice the two different words for God. You have God, which is Elohim. Comfort, comfort my people, says Elohim. And then she has received double from Jehovah's hand, double for her sins. Not to belabor it, but you all know that the different names for God are different aspects of his relationship to his creation. So when he is calling himself Elohim, he is what we would call natural law. In other words, Elohim, that's the thing that makes gravity work. That's the thing that keeps the speed of light constant. That's the thing that, and it's hard to talk about because it's one being. I don't mean to describe him as multiple beings. He's not. It's one being. I used to be in the army, and my kids called me daddy. My troops called me sir or Colonel Barons, and my peers would call me John. So I had several different titles that I would use depending on what was going on. 
the Bible treats God the same way. So depending on what's going on, the Bible uses a different word in the scripture to speak of God. And when it uses Elohim, it's speaking of what we would call natural law, which is every bit as binding as Torah law. When it's talking about Yehovah, talking about the God of relationship. So when he gives the covenant, he's the covenant-keeping God. He's the, I keep saying that. I, I am not the covenant-keeping God as if there's a, a rack of gods up there and we pick the one we happen to have. That's not, it's, it's one God. But when he talks of himself as Jehovah, he's dealing with Israel in covenant relationship and in love. When he talks of himself as Elohim, he is dealing in judgment, natural law, so forth. When he says, Yehovah uh, Tzavaot, what he's talking about himself as a military commander, Lord of hosts. So as we go through here, I'll point out which name is being used and one of the things that's happening here, where it says, comfort, comfort my people, says your Elohim, one of the things we're going to get to in just a minute is talking about idols. And of course, to pagans, idols are also called Elohim, which means they're strong ones. They're the mighty ones. So... Here, what says she has received double from Jehovah's hand, double for all her sins. What is being said there is your punishment for transgressing the covenant has been handled by God, Jehovah, and it is done. In other words, I have satisfied the requirements of the covenant in dealing with you, and I am now ready to exercise forgiveness and grace. So as I say, the names are important. So verse 3, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, Jehovah. Make straight in the desert the highway for our God, Elohim. Every valley shall be built up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of Jehovah shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Jehovah has spoken. A couple of places where that shows up in the New Testament, obviously. Shows up in Luke chapter 3. I'll pick it up at verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went to all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The people of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and so forth. So what it is being used of here is to announce the coming of the Messiah. Also notice, by the way, that Luke in chapter 3 here gives credit to Isaiah for writing the book. You'll notice in the gospel where we reference Isaiah, you'll have references to Isaiah from early Isaiah and late Isaiah, and uniformly, it is all attributed to Isaiah. Back to Isaiah 40. So what we're talking about here in context then is the advent of Yeshua. The idea there is Jehovah has exacted punishment on Israel for transgressing the covenant and is now ready to send them a redeemer who will 
cover all of their sins eventually. One other thing, as Brian was very fond of saying, notice in Isaiah, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. And in Luke, it is generally translated, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And of course, John is in the wilderness when he says that. So it's a natural interpretation. But in the Greek, there are no commas, nor in the Hebrew. So it is a perfectly acceptable translation into English in either case to say, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. In other words, the preparation of the way is in the wilderness. And again, that makes sense because remember earlier in Isaiah where we had him coming up from Basra with the blood of his enemies up to the withers of his horses? He is coming up through the wilderness. So the idea of making for him a straight path or an easy way as he comes up certainly fits that scenario. And of course, that is yet future to both Isaiah and to Luke. Verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. By the way, that is set to music by Brahms in his German Requiem, which is one of my very favorite pieces of music that has ever been written. But this is part of the text that he sets to music. And the idea is people are transitory and God is eternal. It's obviously something that everybody knows that's being restated poetically. Verse 9, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. And again, that may be translated as herald of good news to Zion. The way it's translated here is Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, which is to say Zion is the one who is bringing the good news. And of course, that makes sense if you see Yeshua in Zion. Perfectly good translation, both prophetically and grammatically. It can also be translated, get you up to a high mountain, herald of good news to Zion. It's just speaking to Zion as opposed to having Zion speaking to the world. And both translations are acceptable. Footnotes in the scriptures say these are alternative translations. And the same is with the next couplet. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Same thing applies. Jerusalem can either be the bearer of the good news or the receiver of the good news. And of course, in the case of Yeshua, it's both. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And the Lord God here is Adonai Elohim. Adonai, of course, you all know in Hebrew, does mean Lord or Master, and then Elohim. So behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. So you've got two concepts there. 
One is his reward and his recompense are with him. And the other is that he will deal tenderly with his own flock. And of course, we know that there are two advents. And on the first advent, he did not bring his recompense with him. He simply came to be the covenant victim. On the second advent is when he will come back and do all of this. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance? And this is a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is Jehovah. The only metaphor that you might not recognize, marked off the heavens with a span. A span is a measure that's still used today on horses. You you measure how many hands high. It's a span that you're measuring. Old measurement. And so the idea of marking off the heavens with a span is taking his hand and marking it off that way. Uh, that, That would be the context of that. And of course, closing the dust of the earth in a measure and so forth are simply poetic ways of extolling his greatness. Verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? And again, the rhetorical answer to that is no one because only God knows his own spirit and he certainly does not accept counsel from any of us. Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Reading the book of Job right now. And this sounds very much like Job toward the end. So obviously the answer to all of those things is no one has done that. He is self-existent. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. The metaphor there is when you go down and you fill up a bucket and you're carrying it back to whatever you want the water for, water sort of sloshes out and you don't walk on tiptoes and hold the bucket very level. The amount of water lost in that process is considered negligible. It's a trifle not to be concerned with. And similarly, the dust on a balance Theoretically, in order to give a perfectly just weight, every time you weigh something, you ought to polish the balance to get any dust off of it so that the balance is perfectly level. As a matter of fact, that is not done, and the dust on the balance isn't considered to be negligible. It's not worth the effort to mess with. Verse 16, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Lebanon is famous in biblical times for its forests. So the idea of taking the entire forest of Lebanon and using it to burn offerings is by way of saying a great deal of offering with a great deal of fuel. And the metaphor here obviously is in order to properly do honor to God, There aren't enough trees in all of Lebanon to make the sacrifices, nor are there enough animals in all of Lebanon to make the sacrifices. It's simply by way of describing the greatness of God. 
17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This is sort of the culminating thought of what began back in verse 12, where we're poetically describing the magnificence and greatness of God. And then at the end of all of that, we compare that against all of the nations. And all of that is by way of leading up to that final comparison. I'm going to take a slight diversion. I haven't talked about this in a long time, but this is maybe a good place to do it. Verse 14. Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? One of the things that is misunderstood by much of Christianity is the idea of God's sovereignty. And they will come to places like this and say, God is sovereign. And they take that to mean that God can do anything he wants. That's not what sovereign means. That's not what the word means, first of all. The word does not mean can do anything he wants. The word sovereign means nobody else makes rules for him. So the United States is a sovereign nation, which is to say, Great Britain, Australia, Russia, China, except to the extent that they bribe lawmakers, do not make laws for us. We make our own laws. Theoretically, once we have made our own laws, we are bound by those laws that we make. One of the things that Scripture says over and over and over again is that God binds himself by the laws that he himself makes. I mean, if he didn't, there's nothing we could do about it. Don't get me wrong. But that's one aspect of the book that is a big deal because he says, I'm trustworthy, which is to say, you can count on me following my own laws, and I am telling you what those laws are for two reasons. One, you can trust me, but the other one is when you violate them, I now am perfectly just in coming down and swatting you on the diaper because I have told you what the law is. I'm the sovereign, you're not. And if you violate the law, then I am perfectly just in taking recompense. But the idea of the sovereign God is very often misunderstood by much of the church as meaning he gets to do anything he wants. And that's not what it means. Verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or to what likeness compare with him? Now, we have just finished five verses extolling the greatness, the incomparability, and the magnificence of God. That leads up to here, which says, To whom will you liken God? Or to what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. We've spent all this bandwidth extolling the uniqueness, the greatness, and the incomparability of God, and then turning to people, we say, all right, now what are you going to liken God to? You're going to make an idol, and you're going to try and make the idol represent all of that we've just described. The idea, of course, being 
How foolish can you get? And by the way, this will show up again and again as we go through this section of Isaiah. The same set of questions. It'll show up in the next chapter. It'll show up in that, so forth. So this is the first iteration of that. 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. The idea of making yourself an idol to replace the God who is being described here, one should regard that as the height of foolishness. A couple of things. This, he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who did we just hear about who regarded themselves as grasshoppers. The spies in numbers that went into the land, remember? They went into the land and they saw the giants in the land and they said, we are like grasshoppers. I find that an interesting juxtaposition to hit this passage of Isaiah the same week that we read about the sin of the spies. The other one is, he who sits above the circle of the earth. It has always been known that the earth is round. Christopher Columbus, contrary to what you were taught in grade school, did not discover that the earth was round. The Greeks knew that the earth was round. It's described in the Bible as being round, the circle of the earth. The idea that that's something that has just recently been discovered in the last five or 600 years is just absurd. Anyway, onward. 24. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. We're talking about the inhabitants of the earth. And remember, we just talked about the grass withering and so forth and fading. So this is again the same metaphor that God is permanent, God is forever, and the inhabitants of the earth are transitory. And oh, by the way, their transitory state is in the hand of God. It is not the case that, oh well, we're just mortal and we just die. That's not what this is saying. What it's saying is not only are we just mortal and we die, and he is eternal and does not, but it is also saying that our lives are in his hand. When it says, when he blows on them, they wither. When God blows on the inhabitants of the earth, they wither then a tempest carries them off like stubble. So the idea here is your life is in the hand of God. It is not just the case that you happen to be mortal and when your clock runs down, you die. That's not what's being said. What's being said is your hours are in his hand and he decides how many of them you get. Verse 25, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might? And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And obviously he's talking about the firmament, the stars and the sun and the moon. 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, 
and my right is disregarded by my God. One of the things that shows up over and over again, both in Proverbs and in Psalms, Psalm 73 being the poster child, is the wicked of the earth come to the belief that nobody's watching. Nobody's watching, nobody cares, and so I get to do whatever I want because God's not paying any attention to me. And what God is saying here to Jacob and Israel is, I am paying attention to you. Remember we started off with comfort my people and the fact that the judgment has been finished. There's sort of two aspects, if you will, of God not paying attention. Aspect number one is I can get away with anything I want to. Aspect number two is he doesn't care. One of the things he says in Deuteronomy is when all of the consequences of violating the covenant come upon you, what you're going to say is, oh, if God had been with us, none of this stuff would have happened. When in fact, this stuff is happening because you have abandoned the covenant. So God is in fact being faithful to his word, but in your humanity, when calamity is befalling you, you wail to God for not protecting you when he, in fact, is the one that is chastening you. It is the philosophy of the wicked. If you read Proverbs or you read, say, for example, Psalm 73, well, let's go there. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, this people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say... How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So this guy is whining and moaning because the cheats and the grifters and so forth are prospering, and he's being good and he isn't prospering. It's one long whine up to this point. Verse 14, For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it became to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. In other words, as I was trying to understand why good stuff happens to bad people and bad stuff happens to good people, I was getting grumpy and discouraged and despondent. That's what he's saying. Until he went into the sanctuary of God, there I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin until they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms.
When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. In other words, I'm a stupid animal who doesn't understand what he's saying there. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. It's even more typical of Proverbs. The idea that you're going to be tempted to envy the sharp operators, the grifters, and so forth, because they seem to be getting away with it. And what this psalm says, no, that's not true. And now back to Isaiah in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? That can be either of two things. It can be, I can get away with it because nobody's watching, as I was reading in Psalm 73, or it can be the opposite of that in Psalm 73, where I'm going about my life and doing good, and my life is miserable. Where's the justice in that? You see all over Scripture, the world is a puzzling place. You, know, you have the Word of God that says one thing, and you have experience that says something else, and what do you believe? All right, so back to Isaiah. We're now in chapter 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, Jehovah is the everlasting Elohim, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. What he is obviously saying is, hey guys, you have got a covenant with me. I do not change. However, it is not given to you to understand what I am doing. His, his ways are unsearchable. In other words, I've got bigger fish to fry, and as I'm frying those bigger fish, it may look kind of weird to you from time to time, but don't worry about it. I've got this. Verse 29. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for Jehovah shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I heard a kind of a nice teaching on that uh, triplet there. Mounting up with wings like eagles was described as someone who is a new believer, full of enthusiasm and so forth. Then you're flying through the air, sort of comes down to the ground, and you run for a while. But the really hard part is walking, because that takes the rest of your life. Just always thought that was kind of a nice perspective on that triplet. I haven't said this in a while. It's probably a good time to say it again. The earth is a sorter. It's a machine to sort sheep from goats. It is also a machine to refine disciples. 
And for anybody who's ever been a coach or anything like that, in order to get a good team at the end, you got to make them kind of miserable during training. That's what makes people grow. That's what stretches them and so forth. So as unpleasant as it is going through boot camp or any of these other things, it is intended to produce someone who is trained and strong and ready to do what's necessary. But having said that, it's never pleasant while you're going through it. All you can do is trust that the one who is putting you through it has your best interests ultimately at heart. And that's not easy. Especially when the building falls on all your children and the Sabians steal all your cattle and camels and you got boils all over your body and your wife says, just die. Not suggesting that this is easy. And I expect that when we meet Job, he's going to be decorated like you wouldn't believe. Because he, he did well. And by the way, it, it is authorized and approved to whine. Job whines. It's okay. You can whine. And at the end of it, God sort of jerks him up by the stacking swivel and says, who are you to complain? And Job says, oh, yeah, I guess I shouldn't. Let us shaman.